All right, why don't you uh, give me a hello, hello. We'll see how that went. Hello, hello. My name's Mark Bassanella. Great. All right. Hi, this is Doc Russ. I'm, uh, we're going to do a podcast today with Dr. Mark Bassanella. He's the founder and director of the Ecological Cultural Initiative. And uh, we've had the opportunity to chat for... Minutes. Yeah, yeah, about an hour. <laughs> and uh, we decided that we're going to stay good friends. Uh, I decided it. I didn't hear from him yet. But uh, we have a lot of interesting things to talk about. Sure. And one of the things that I was most intrigued about in our previous conversation was this idea that to change the world, we really need to change culture. Yeah, Tell me a little I, bit about that. Well, I think that's essential because uh, the culture that we have People, when you talk to people, they say, well, it's always been this way and this is just the way it is. And, you know, we've always had grocery stores. And if you really look at it, it's the shortest culture we've had in human history. If the Egyptians had a culture that lasted 3,500 years, the Greeks had a culture that lasted 600 years, civilization that lasted 600 years, the Romans a few hundred years, then the French maybe 200. Then the, <laughs> you know, it's, right, the, the American small. culture, right? And then we're since, not even, we're talking about a small portion of the American culture. I mean, we're talking like since 19... The World 50, War II. Right. World 19, War II, the end of World War II. So and that's whole, where our culture is really defined. Absolutely. And it's defined by this notion that technology can solve any problem. Uh, there is no problem that technology can't solve. Right. And uh, that resources are unlimited. The, and, and that growth is, uh, continued exponential growth is a good thing. We showed a film uh, called More Than Honey, and there's a honey... Um, be and a, a, somebody who takes bees around the country to uh, fertilize crops, and he says, you know, total world domination. That's the goal: is to is to have this product or have this service that that everybody in the world needs, and that's the problem. That's the reason that we have uh, industrial. So take it to places where they don't even have necessarily. Well, but a good example is uh, in Africa. I think it's the Hazda tribe, uh, but there are many tribes in Africa that have fantastic. Uh, ceramics culture. They would uh, make these beautiful ceramic pots. And now if you go back, the, the, you can collect all these African ceramics, but if you go to get people who are making new ones, they don't exist because plastics came in. So they're still living a tribal culture. They're goat herds, but they are using all these plastic bowls. And they've lost that, that tradition because wow. we had this notion that somehow a plastic bowl is better. Of course, right now, uh, there's more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. Uh, the number one particulate in the air in North America is plastic from really? Ireland. Wait, you think are, about, you, are you telling me that I'm breathing plastic right Because now? of all the Ireland. if you think about and all the... You're so worried about water. And, of <laughs> course, in, the, in, in our water, too, from, from washing clothes, if it goes yeah. into the uh, sewage system... Uh, so, wait, I have to worry about what I drink. I have to worry about what I eat. And now I have to worry about what I breathe? Breathe. So, so that's the it's thing is that we, we got these, this idea that, that we can invent a technology that it's better than the older technology. And we kind of didn't bring things uh, from the past with us in many cases. We threw them out and said, you know, a car is better than a horse or a tractor is better than a horse. Um, and there are cases where a horse is better than a tractor, uh, yeah. certainly in forestry. Uh, there's cases where horses, they made a lot of sense because they were able to walk through forests and take logs out of narrow spaces. And so, mm, interesting. Um, so our culture since 1950 anyway, has let me been... Just, a, let me just reflect on that for a moment because I'm imagining the difference between a horse and a, and a vehicle in the forest. And what it suggests to me is that you can be more selective exactly. as to what you can harvest exactly. in a forest. So now forestry is sort of a, a slash and burn proposition. It's almost the same way we fish. Let's just take 
everything, and then we'll throw the stuff we don't need away. Right. And but it, it doesn't get to live, and it doesn't get to mature into something else. And if you think about in a developing country, especially a, a very undeveloped country, you know, going in and bringing in industrial machinery and bringing in petroleum stations, and you know, may not be the best thing right. for that uh, for that ecosystem for that culture. So there's a, a great film. Um, I forget the name of the film right now, but it's it's uh, schooling the world, uh, and it's done it's done by a young Indian activist, and and he shows that there are many places where. Westernization, giving people computers and, and access to Western education, totally destroys their traditional skills, their ability to survive, their ability to farm. Well, it's that to missionary sort of idea. It's this idea exactly. that, well, you know, we, we are this Western civilization, we're this Western religion, and, and you're going to go to hell if you don't well, adopt it. And then they go to school, they become IT engineers, and there are only so many jobs for IT engineers in Tibet. Or in cities in India, and so they're they're now they can't go home. They don't have any of the skills to survive at home, or any of the kind of cultural understanding of how to survive. Wow! And they're stuck in this Western and the, culture, right? And the best they can do is code websites for six bucks an hour, or three bucks an hour, exactly. so, or in some cases a dollar an hour, not right. even right. And, and that's that idea that you know Bill Gates wants to give everybody a laptop. That may not be the best idea. Hmm. Uh, so. That's one of the things that we, we have to think about is since this has really been an experiment since 1950, mm -hmm. we have to kind of look back with a long view over all of human civilization. That's one of the reasons at Ecological Culture Initiative we teach permaculture. And so permaculture was put together in 1970s by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. Holmgren. And what they do um, did at the time in 1972 is look at all the different agricultural practices that existed before industrial agriculture. Okay. And then try to say, all right, how did ancient Aztec systems use water or preserve water or fertilize? So how taking did... sort of a best practices approach, exactly. learning from what worked for these other cultures. Exactly. So it took the best ideas from each one of those things and then posited these new theories. And Which we didn't do with industrial farming. No, we, we just kind of, kind of like, out. It was kind of a crash and burn. Bigger is better. Right. Yeah, so yeah. if you go on Google Earth, it's an amazing, I do it with my students all the time. If you go on Google Earth and you look all throughout the Midwest of the United States, especially Iowa, uh, I, I use the word paradise. I say, oh, look up paradise, Texas. Look up paradise, Iowa. And you'll see there's nothing but miles and miles and miles of desert. Occasionally, there's a ring of green okay. because the agricultural irrigation systems use these rings. But most of the time... Or their sewage. Or right, their sewage. <laughs> CAFO, for CAFOs. Right, but, right. But most of it, they're growing uh, wheat, soy, um, wow. corn. And you'll just see that it goes on for miles and miles and miles. And it's desert because there are no trees breaking between the, the fields. The fields are incredibly large. And if there's no money in farming that year, they just leave it and the topsoil blows away. Um, and, and we had that problem with the dust bowl the dust in the bowl. 30s. And, and uh, there are some estimates that we've lost up to five feet of topsoil in some places. Um, so, wow. so the idea of permaculture... It takes thousands of years to lay down sure, uh, you're, you know, a few inches of topsoil. So, And that's a, another phrase that I like to use all the time, is that we have this, this, this notion of a growth-based economy and a growth-based culture, and growing is better, making universities is better, uh, bigger is better, making uh, you know, towns bigger is better, increase the tax base. But what we don't look is at the decay that that causes. So in permaculture, and its newest iteration is edible food forests, um, you would have... Wait, wait, I want to just marinate on that second. 
edible food forest. Yeah. This is the guy who goes hiking and doesn't bring lunch because I just eat the stuff I find. <laughs> so, so at, and you can create these forests in on a suburban lot. So we have a, a property we're working with. Uh, it's called Gordon's Backyard Permaculture Project. Okay. And we're creating an edible food forest. He already had a lot of the bones there. He, he's uh, kind of self-taught and he's got all kinds of fruit trees. And what you're doing is mimicking the succession of a forest. So Anybody who's out here who saw the Pine Barrens fires, yeah, and now you see the forest start to come back sure, in. Sure, there's a tremendous amount of biodiversity. It's not only pine trees, right? There's and that's one of the reasons that fire is something that sort of nature uses to reinvigorate. So biodiversity. that's that growth and decay balance. Yeah. And so it's going to be a much more biodiverse forest, and there are up to 30 types of uh, fruit trees that uh, fruit plants. Um, that will come up there. The seeds, some seeds can stay latent up to 50 years in the soil yeah. on Long Island. People don't realize that, but that's exactly what a seed is designed to do. It's like a little time capsule. Right. I'm going to take my DNA and I'm going to protect it. And then many, many, many years later, it'll then flourish. Humans can't do that, right. which so, is why we're so worried about right now. Right? Yeah. So we have an agroecology director, Rachel Stevens, who is incredibly knowledgeable in what uh, wild plants you can eat. And she, uh, when we're at her, we created a, a biointensive, small teaching biointensive farm this year on her. Uh, she runs a sweet woodland farm, which is a small backyard farm. Okay. It's on 1.7 acres. Um, and we, you know, you, we let the plantain come up. You let let the mustard weed come up. You yeah. Know, you let things come. Uh, well, you bring up, you know, you bring up. Uh, we we talked about mustard. I mentioned mustard yeah. weed earlier, and I I don't think people realize what a narrow band of plant food they eat as compared mm -hmm. to the amount of plant food they can eat. Oh, and so you my, can eat a lot of weeds on Long Island, and one of them is mustard weed. Yes. And in fact, when my daughter first became vegetarian and then vegan for a while, she. Um, was really shocked and she had somebody she was blogging with and she realized how much more different types of food she was eating because she was trying new things all the time right because, and know, that's the thing and people say well oh you're gonna go vegetarian it's like oh i don't know if i could you know eat that there's no there's really not that much and you eat more variety especially as you start to explore things that you never heard yeah, of you summer. know people never heard of quinoa or jackfruit and those are the basics Mustard weed yeah. salads really, really good. Yeah. And then um, lamb's quarter. I made a salad with lamb's quarter. Beautiful. We have ground cherries. I mean, there's all these things you never would find in the grocery store. Right. Or and you'd think they were disgusting if you ate them because they were just stuck on the ground or weeds. Yeah. Okay. So, so we have this weird sort of, again, that's part of our internal culture. Right. Is that we have this thought schema, this whole idea of the way the world is. It turns out none of it's true. So the, the goal with uh, Edible Food Forest is... Besides being able to forage, you can create in a backyard uh, an ecosystem that you're not growing only corn or only tomatoes or only, you're growing so many different things that when you look at it, you're not going to get a huge amount of corn or a huge amount of tomatoes or a huge, but if you look at the amount of calories you're generating, because you have all of these layers, mm -hmm. you have nut trees and then fruit trees underneath the nut trees. Uh, and then you have a berry producing kind of shrubs. the way the earth was designed to operate. Which is what you'll see where the pine barrens happen. You'll see blueberry bushes coming up and huckleberry bushes coming up and, you know, all kinds of the wild strawberry that the, the um, uh, box turtles eat. Like all of these layers of and, plants. And me. I'll eat. So, so those, those serve different niches at different layers, different heights. And so that's the idea of an edible food Oh, that's forest. really cool. Yeah, yeah. And then I, there's also farm. So the box turtle's probably not going to get to the blueberries at the top. Exactly. But the deer will. And certainly, I, I know from uh, spending a lot of time upstate and in Pennsylvania, I've seen bear, black bear, mm -hmm. eat blueberry. And you think they would rip the plant apart? No, they're very delicate. They're actually very delicate. If you yeah. see a black bear eat a blueberry, right after I got over the fact that he wasn't going to eat me, 
I sat there and I watched him or her, I don't know, eat these blueberries. Little, this yeah. So delicate. And yeah. it was just amazing to me to see this massive animal do that. And so Suzanne Ruggles, who's also on our uh, staff, uh, she's known as the Barefoot Gardener, and we just did a tour of her property. And it's amazing, all the layers of biodiversity she has, all native plants. And she's not um, creating a forest to feed people. She's creating a forest to feed animals. So she has no problem with the deer. She's a estate gardener, and she has no problem with the deer uh, damaging her garden because she has so many things for them to eat. Right. They take a nibble here, they take a nibble there, and they're full. Right. Because it's a very dense, lush environment, food that the deer can eat. What a and great idea. I mean, right now there's such, a, there's such an initiative to eradicate deer or, or cull the population, which, you know, isn't exactly good science, but... They want to, we want to call the population, but at the end of the day, it's because well, I bought all this great landscaping, and I'm tired of the deer eating exactly. it. Exactly. Really, that's a good reason to take a life. So I'm not so sure it is. So like, uh, <laughs> the problem is we have this culture that lawns and uh, arborvitae and uh, Leland um, cypress and these kind of plants that don't perform any ecosystem services. The deer the the deer don't eat them. The um, well, the deer do eat the arborvitae occasionally. The the uh, the birds don't nest in them. They don't produce berries that the birds can eat. So we create these ecosystems. Now we're upset that the deer come in and eat the few things that we have, or the rabbits eat the few right, things. Right, because they, they don't have, have anything else, right? You're restricting, right, what they, what they so can So my eat. son has a landscaping business, and I help him mow lawns occasionally, and there's two types of lawns. Lawns that are scrappy and full like of ours. holes, <laughs> and they're dry and dusty. And, then you're, and you're saying, why is this person paying my son $30, 40 $50 to mow? Like, obviously, the lawn isn't that valued in their life because it's you know it's not something they, they take care of right. it's just kind of like something they feel they have to have and they spend a lot of money maintaining it the line trimmers and gas that has to go into it and, yeah yeah and then the other lawns that are over water they have a sprinkler system they're over watered so then they're putting down fungicides and and then the, there's so much water that it's draining the fertilization out of the soil and they're bagging the clippings so that there's nothing there's uh, there's no biodegradation happening you know so they're they're have to put fertilizers down and they're watering that and so, and, and they're they're soggy when you mow them, and they're absolutely devoid of insects and birds because they're this Thank sterile God. environment. <laughs> we have, we, right. It's always good to have your front lawn be some sort of a laboratory and back lawn. That's, so they right. up and have a fence. We mow the front. You go in the back. It's exactly like the front. It's just so then, a yeah, line they, of trees around it, it's, and it's so not it's one step. It's one step removed from an actual artificial turf. Exactly, is what I'm hearing. which the people are advocating in some places. But as you heard before, if, if our, we have more plastic in our ocean than than fish, then we probably shouldn't be putting down artificial turf. We should, you know. Yeah, I mean, is it is it that important to have a green lawn? Right, and when I'm not, you can I, plant so many other things to be more diverse, and then that require people say, well, it's too much maintenance. People have to go out there and weed. Well, if you added up the time that's spent mowing line trimming, blowing, raking the leaves. You added up all that time. It's the same amount of time you would spend weeding paying, or paying someone to, to weed. And, you know, you mentioned that these people are not necessarily growing things that human beings can eat. But here's the thing. Human beings can eat this stuff. So you actually could go out to your yard and yes. pick yourself a beautiful salad. Right, um, which is what we're doing in Gordon's Yard. It's this gorgeous, lush environment. Listen, if there's a way to sign up for this Gordon's Yard project, you can more than have well, a ball October, here. October 28th, we're going to have a, a, a backyard bonfire. Uh, at Gordon's property. Oh, for cool! Halloween, so, right. so people will be able to come. So that's see open it to the public. It is for a suggested donation. Okay, uh, and we'll have some food there. Uh, it's, a, it's a great so, place. So you know, you bring up an event. 
that your organization's having. So why don't we make sure that everybody knows what the website is so that sure. they can go there and see the events. Yep. If you go to eciny.org, the first page you'll see right on the right-hand side, it says current events. So eciny.org. In stereo. eciny.org. <laughs> in stereo. Yeah. Okay, good. And there's some great events that you're doing. And, you know, you're based in Hampton Bays. Yeah. And uh, many of you know that my wife, Karen, is a born and raised in Hampton Bays. And one of the things that when we were growing up, she used to love to quote the statistic that Hampton Bays has more bars per capita yeah. than anywhere else in the world. But that culture is changing. Is changing. And Tell one of the me reasons, a little bit about that. Yeah, one of the reasons we decided to start ECI in Hampton Bays is that it is the only East End town uh, on the South Fork that has a train station that stops right in the center, walking distance from the movie theater, the grocery store, the pharmacy, the community center, the library, all three schools. So, it's, so you're it's, suggesting that people can actually use the mass transit for the purpose it was intended? And, and they are. It's amazing. Over the past couple of years, I've noticed people getting off the train and walking with bags to a summer rental, which you never saw when I first. I moved to Hampton Bays in 1992. Wow, and yeah. You never saw that. Everything was very car-centric. and So the traffic in Hampton Bays is not... There's traffic going through it, trying to get further east. Right, but in the town, it's not It's so really much. not that, that bad. It's not even as bad going to the beach because more people are biking to the beach. It's, so it's, it's on the edge. And there are all these undeveloped lots that had been developed in Southampton. I, I did a project called Seeing Southampton with the GIS department of Southampton, and you can see how all the lots were getting G filled GIS. in. Uh, geographic information systems. So I use that for a lot of. I didn't even know there was a department of that. Yep. So a lot okay. of presentations I try to show where the building lots are. This Thursday I'll be giving a talk, uh, September 9th at the um, uh, Quag Library called "Rethinking Communities" at 6 p.m. That'll that'll show some of this. You know how many building footprints there are, where the stormwater slosh is. Uh, sea level rise is supposed to be 31 inches by 2050. So you'll see what parts will be inundated. Um, because there are many coastal homes that will be inundated, so we have to change the way we create bulkheads. But Hampton Bays, because it's surrounded on three sides by water, right. it has the largest year-round population, and the population's been growing because there's quite a few houses being built in the last couple of years, especially after there was a New York Times article saying that it was the next great place to turn into a Hamptons. So, of course, everybody came right. this past spring and bought up all the houses and started cutting down trees. And We had that problem here on the North Fork. Yeah, <laughs> building new houses. <laughs> so the population's going up. It's the largest year-round population, surrounded on three sides by water, a barrier island with no houses on it uh, in front of the Hampton Bays, and then 350,000 acres of pine barrens on the other side. So it's really an amazing yeah, opportunity. It's, it's pretty beautiful, actually. Well, it's an amazing opportunity to create a model of how, because when I, I used to give talks for the Hampton Bay Civic Association about these concepts, and it, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to create a model, because people kept saying to me, I'd say, you know, this is what they're doing in Staten Island. They put in the Staten Island Blue Belt to deal with their stormwater runoff. And this is what they're doing in China to deal with the septic, excuse me, yes, the septic systems. Um, it, you know, a, an outdoor public park that is actually processing the sewage for a whole section of a city. You bring up a really important point, water runoff. Yep. Okay, so that most of the pollution that we're dealing with, and certainly Hampton Bays is a great example of this because anyone who's ever done any shell fishing in uh, Hampton Bays And we knows, just had a, red t a series of red tides. Right, we have... We have Red tide is an issue, yeah. um, which is directly related to water pollution because mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, was it nitrogen nitrogen level. allows the the red tide to the, the algae to flourish. Yeah. Uh, and in addition to that, I mean, shellfish areas are being closed all the time because there's just not enough clean water to sustain a healthy right. shellfish. And then of course you eat whatever diseases. So so uh, if you go to any waterfront restaurant in Hampton Bays, whether it's on the ocean, whether it's on the bays, and there are several, uh, you're going to smell sewage. 
uh, if you're there during a high tide. And that's because the septic systems are in the water. And they're, they're not above the water, they're in the great. water. So when the tide comes up, there's no place for it to go. Um, so, uh, so wait a minute. So if you're in the habit of going to waterfront restaurants in Hampton Bays, you're also in the habit of uh, putting using, sewage directly in the water? If you're using the bathroom, if you're urinating, it's worse than if you're defecating. If so you're by urinating. all means, everyone, hold it till you get home. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you're urinating, the, the high levels of nitrogen are in your urine, um, not in your feces. Uh, and then, although there's coliform bacteria in your feces, and that's not great for the bay either. Right, right. Um, but that's more dangerous to us for swimming, and, and you might eat it. And, uh, but bottom clam. line is sewage in the water around right but the urine is the the big issue so um if we had beer equals equals mm. right so if we had um tanks if we had separate urinals and bidets that went into tanks and separated that from the the rest it would it would drastically reduce uh, and that would be an easy fix um for all these restaurants and then of course there's a program now both uh the center for clean water technology at stony brook southampton and the town uh, and Suffolk County are working on these new septic systems. But what they're doing is they're changing the law, which is fantastic, so that you'll, if you do new construction or if you do more than 25% of a renovation on your home, you're going to have to put in one of these new advanced wastewater treatment systems. Which but is that's nothing gonna, what you're suggesting, but it's not that particularly very complex. Slow, it's just, right, it's, it's a just, very slow fix to the solution. What we should be doing is taking all those waterfront properties, and as my son likes to say in these cases is, why aren't people freaking out like it's the day after 9-11? If all of these waterfront restaurants are having this problem, like this is an obvious problem. Right, and, right. This and that's not even looking at the residences. That's just the, the restaurants that are basically in the water. You know, that's the first place we should fix the problem. Instead right. of creating it, we but should then we have the all laws. this waterfront development. Right, and, and for, that's for, right. that's another issue is that we have to think differently about bulkheads, and we have to think differently about um, it's a different culture. So, uh, one of our affiliated faculty, Martha Weller, uh, is an expert uh, in bioswales and stormwater management. And okay. there's a property Hampton Bay. She did a fantastic job taking them all the excess rainwater and essentially taking plants. The town of Southampton requires you have a 50 foot buffer. Uh, mm -hmm. where you can't mow and you have to let native plants come up and you could plant grasses but you have to create this naturalized area she said why don't we bring that naturalized area back towards the house and then create a stormwater management system that's using the plants they just literally took plugs from the meadow of native plants and put and used takes less watering and less maintenance it doesn't need fertilizer and it's the the biggest when people come to visit the house it's like this they say well, how did who did this landscape you know you have such Nature, beautiful flowers, it. and they're right. flowers that were taken yeah. directly from the meadow that was seeded by itself, by birds. Take-home take message here is it turns out that plants process water. Right. Who knew? And then, <laughs> uh, one of the really important things uh, to understand is that in, in changing culture, very often people follow, like if you look at a Long Island wedding, where Long Island's famous for its, its big weddings, yeah. it's an imitation of a royal wedding. You know, it's a huge thing. It's that and moment for everybody to be yeah, giant. And so we're emulating the wealthy. And so in East Hampton, uh, Edwina Van Gaal has a fantastic project called the Perfect Earth Project, and she is a landscape designer to the stars. And um, she has created fantastic landscapes using only native plants. Wow. Uh, so, so that's really actually a, a good way to, because once the wealthy sort of adopt People will this, follow. People will follow. <laughs> it seems kind of shallow, but it's true. But that's one so of that's our, a problem. Right. That's one of our goals for next spring and summer is to start doing garden tours. So people can go on these garden and tours. see what can be, what It can doesn't happen. have to just be a, 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 an imitation of a French uh, imperial lawn. 
that's right. where it comes from. It comes from Versailles. What we're yeah. imitating in weddings and in landscapes is an imitation of, of French, you know, royal gardens. Sure. And they're the people <laughs> who threw my family out. There you go. So, <laughs> so, and that was a short empire. So yeah. we all that. Right. They didn't do it right. <laughs> they ended up with their heads they on lost, pikes. Right, they lost, yeah. <laughs> so in other words, what he's saying is if you want your head on a pike, have a nice lawn. Uh, <laughs> so, so, and these things will have to change. Like we were talking earlier about how paradigm shift because we we live in a context and we think it's always been this way and then whenever i i say that thing about you know egyptian civilization people they're like wow that's true i did yeah know. and then but, that's those are just the civilizations we know about because there are some right. civili aztec civilizations right we don't know a lot Asian, about China, civilizations that predate right 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 and the middle east there's so many like we don't study as part of western education and there's and some of them we aren't even accessible to us because they have been completely lost that's right history. we don't realize from... that there are there are entire civilizations entire periods of time that we just cannot account because there were oral histories and they've been, you know, lost or, time. or they were so advanced that everything was on uh, computer hard drives and <laughs> the power went out. I mean, that's possible, right? That, that we're just simply repeating what had happened before. So uh, it's so it's important to understand. And people are frightened. They're saying, well, what do you mean our, our civilization won't continue? Like, how could that how can that happen? Right. What's going to happen? But I would say there's still Egyptians. There's still Greeks. There's still Romans. It's not like everybody goes away. Right. It's just but the that style does of shift. what you think is the dogma of thinking this is the run, one right way to right. do architecture. This is the one right way. And then people say, well, wait, you know, capitalism is never going to end. Like we're, the profit motive drives it. Nobody would work if it wasn't for the profit motive. And I always point out, you know, the, the aqueducts were not built for profit. The most advanced water system the world has ever had. Right. New York City water system is today is actually pretty sophisticated but but the aqua the roman aqueducts they were in use up until about a decade ago they still had fountains in rome that were in use amazing and that was not built for the profit motive it was built because the civilization knew that people needed access to clean water and sanitation they had public toilets yeah so that's you know it's and not i'm not saying that capitalism is evil or it's just that we have this notion that it has always been this way. It hasn't. It's the shortest experiment in human history. I think We've been on the planet really... for millions of years and, and tens of thousands of years. We've had different civilizations. It's, this is a very, it's 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. That we've had and, this. and I think that's something really important to connect people with. Now, yeah. the last question I want to ask you is help me understand how our food choices impact our environment so it's it's first of all when we were talking about nitrogen before uh, if you're really concerned about your urine having less nitrogen at that restaurant that's got its septic system in the water don't eat meat because meat uh, when you see, eat that's meat, why it's okay for me to go in the bay I can go in the bay <laughs> all, all I want because <laughs> when you when you eat meat it, it uh, radically increases the amount of nitrogen it helps me feel better on and a lot of levels people, just so you know right. <laughs> so people have probably already heard this but if you think about it it's very common sense it, you know it takes so many uh, pounds of grain to feed cattle that you're, you're getting right. there was a calorie figure I remember it, you know it took X amount of calories right. to make one calorie of so you're concentrating meat. that nitrogen and it's coming out in your waste because wow. you know, it keeps getting concentrated so that's why it's well, not very to mention what common it's doing sense to your body while it's in there right but it's very common sense so that would be uh, one of the most important things and then instead of eating industrialized food products even if which I love almonds and it's hard not to eat almonds but uh, if you know how they're farmed they basically have almond trees in a desert and they cart bees all over the country and they spray them fungicides and it's a uh, so you know knowing that food to the extent that you can knowing that food is local and it's organic and it's fresh and you cannot 
really, unless you've caught it yourself or you know the fishermen, you can't really get fresh fish or fresh meat right. uh, and unless you know you the chickens or it's a little local farm because right. it, it changes that context. So all of that food is sometimes you know three weeks, three months old, right. and then it's processed in all these ways. And, of course, all those chemicals are then going into your waste. Uh, so that in the Hudson River, we know there's Benadryl and there's antibiotics and there's, a, there's you ah. know, what you eat. Ends so up instead in of going to the pharmacy, and, you just take a dump in the, in the Hudson River. <laughs> so just take a swim. So it's that easy. is really important to think and about. And soon oxycodone because that's, you know, that's no, got to go there. No, that's in our waterways. Oh, right, so if you're having a little pain, just... <laughs> yeah, no, they found it in wild salmon. It's amazing. They found wow. uh, all kinds of And that's the next thing. It's like drugs. even if the fish is fresh. There's a pretty good Viagra chance. they found in waterways. Unless, of course, you don't want to get a Viagra prescription, have some salmon. But, right? but That's the, what you're so, so the important thing is to really think about how local you can make it, how fresh you can get it. You know, and, and then, of course, it is true that because of the way we've evolved as a species and the context and the paradigm we live in now, the healthiest food you can eat. If you don't believe me, watch Forks Over Knives, watch What the Health, re, uh, read Michael Pollan's book. Michael Pollan eats meat. But if you listen to read all of his books, he points out very clearly that it's not healthy for you and it's not healthy for the ecosystem. Right. And I think that what he brings out is best. If you are willing to run down, hunt and kill an animal. Uh, I mean, run it down. I'm not talking about you know, sitting in a tree. No, with a no. I'm talking bait. about this is the way humans were designed to eat. Run it down. Huh. Uh, you know. Under those circumstances, it may actually be a healthy food for you because a uh, you need to be able to run faster than the than the than the than the prey. Which, wow. by the way, that is how human beings were designed to hunt. We were endurance hunters. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So we were designed to uh, run just behind the animal until it became exhausted until it bled walked, out. Right, I mean, and essentially, walked up to you're, it. you're shooting with an arrow or right. a spear, and so it, it takes a long time to you have to actually shoot with several arrows. And so when and you can run fifty out. to hundred miles in a clip. By all means, become a meat eater again. Uh, but you won't have to become a meat eater to get that protein uh, because we all know that us vegans have all the protein we need. <laughs> so, uh, but I digress. Uh, the, the point I think we're trying to make here is that, number one, human beings don't need animal products to survive. That's true. Yeah. And human beings are now realizing, and the evidence is catching up with this, that human beings uh, are actually healthiest when they eat a plant-based diet. Yeah, that's true. And now we find out that even our urine and our feces is healthier when we eat a plant-based for, for diet. For the ecosystem. For the ecosystem. Yeah. And you don't have problems with maggots and the, you know all kinds of things. So. And we didn't even get into the larger environmental impact of what it takes to farm animals. We're just talking about the huge impact that human beings that eat meat have on the environment in this immediate area where there is not a lot of factory farming, but even in areas where factory farming happens, well, it's, then it, it's a we, huge problem. We do have, well. not factory farming, but we have... Uh, no, we have the duck farms. They're and a we big have, problem. Right, and we have a, kind of a small-scale model of it in industrial farming. If you look at the North Fork, which is beautiful when you drive around, it's bucolic and it's, it's uh, quaint, and you look at you, it's, you know, but look at it from Google Earth, and you will see that it's a desert, uh, that it's mostly monocrops of, of uh, now... Now uh, mostly grapes. Grapes, and, and, and much of the year... It's a desert, and there's no cover crop. The soil is left bare. The wind's blowing it away. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in fact, if, and I don't know so much on the uh, North Fork because I don't spend as much time, but the South Fork, if you drive by, you'll see the, the snow is tinted by the topsoil. You'll see yeah. all this brown snow. No, that's true. So the and that's the, the topsoil. That's the topsoil that was washing into the roadways and then into storm drains and then... Into the bay. Uh, right. So, wow. and nitrifying the bay because if it's had pest, uh, fertilizers uh, or putting pesticides in the bay, which is... Um, then killing all kinds of beneficial microbes that are in the ocean. That, wow. Uh, so, 
anyway yes you're absolutely right uh, so what we did with the ecological culture initiative is we started uh, because of Rachel Stevens our agroecology director with literally a seed library giving away free seeds so we give away free seeds in the public library and then we start, moved on from there to uh, showing a film called Seed which is worth watching if you haven't seen it okay. uh, you can get it online Seed, um, seed the movie uh, and then we taught organic gardening classes and now we develop teaching gardens we're developing a new one in conjunction with the uh, Catholic Retreat Center in Hampton Bays and so the idea is to oh, show people a busy guy and the idea is to show people that they can they don't have to tear up all their lawn and you know drastically and spend a ton of money you can slowly evolve that backyard into some place that's feeding you but also feeding animals and beneficial animals pollinators and beneficial insects that are going to keep the pests off your crops and birds so Douglas Tallamy wrote a book uh, called Bringing Nature Home where he bought a farm and he planted the trees to attract the inchworms, to attract the birds that would keep the pests off his crops. So I, I just want to—I just want to encapsulate this because I think um, if people are listening, they should be really, really intrigued by this idea. For those of you who are spending tens of thousands of dollars on landscaping, and in the process of that, unknowingly hurting the environment, you don't have to be a vegan tree hugger. To understand the economics of creating an ecosystem on your property mm -hmm. that is self-sustaining, that is beautiful, that will um, be better for the environment and also bring some things to your home that maybe you would love to have there, like hummingbirds exactly. and other creatures that will add to the enjoyment of your space. And here's something that you may not be aware of. When you stop trying to artificially manipulate your environment, it will, by extension, become a more peaceful and quiet place. We don't do anything to our property except let it grow. And when people come here, they always take a deep sigh and they realize it's peaceful. And part of that, I believe, is because the sprinkler's not running, there's, not, uh, there's nothing artificial going on here, and we're planning to do more and more of what you were talking about, mm -hmm. is to make it more naturally ecological place. This is why we go to parks. Wouldn't it be great if you could have a park on your property and this is the place to go to learn how to do that. Thank you. So that's that's what I would say. Would you say that's a, a fair, good... Yes, that's exactly what we're trying to teach. And, and our ultimate goal is to create um, a center for field ecology and regenerative design. So we're working with the town of Southampton to do that, but that's a very slow process. The town governments are not... Uh, they don't they don't move um, at lightning speed right and uh, so we're really looking for a donor to step up to the plate uh, if somebody wanted to we have one um, gentleman who actually has written us into our will for that project um, but really we need a, a building and a piece of land that we can create that education center and okay. bring students from uh, universities and uh, local students and then international students to come and study this because that's why I was saying you know if you look at where we are especially we're sitting here where we're surrounded by we can be a model of how because 90% uh, of the human race by uh, 2100 is going to live in cities and they're going to live in cities near waterways sure and so all the problems that we're dealing with with septic systems and how Go to produce food and it's it, you can teach this so that it becomes a model sure. that's, that's sure. a, and it's not and, being taught in that many places and even in cities um, you can practice this kind of agriculture. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love walking the High Line, and there's a pretty yeah. good example of, you know, here is an urban feature, an, an elevated railway 
that has been allowed to uh, proliferate native plants. Yeah. And, and then Brooklyn Grange has a, a farm, rooftop farm that supplies restaurants and a farms CSA. Really pretty awesome thing. Yeah. And so, there's a, a lot of rooftop in the in cities. <laughs> so it sounds like we're going to need to do more than one podcast because I think this one is just about done. Okay. I want to thank Dr. Passanella for his time and his knowledge and his wonderful energy here. And I look forward to you engaging with his website, which is ECINY.org. ECINY.org. Thank you. Thank you.